Well, hey, everybody, it's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations, and it's that funny little quiet weekend between Christmas and New Year's when we either get nothing done or a lot done. Um, we're today going to take a deep dive with a guy named John Barry, who is the writer of a book called Rising Tide that tells the story of the politics around the 1927 flood that nearly took down the city and a lot of other places along the way. Um, but now he's talking about what's happening with our coastal um, area, with the erosion that we're having and with the oncoming um, increase in the ocean levels that's going to really challenge us. So we're going to do a, a really deep dive. We're going to talk with him about what's going on and what the solutions are that we're going to have to um, really uh, work with to you know, keep the city going, period. And that's what he's essentially saying. If we don't stay on the case right now, um, the very existence of New Orleans is at risk. So here we go with an interview with John Barry, and I wish you all a very new, happy year. And um, I'm going to suggest that you think about what we're going to have to do to get things done in the coming year and, and keep our city alive and well. All right. So as we um, approach 2018, uh, sometimes identified as our tricentennial year, um, and we look at our um, past years in, in terms of environmental policy and, and also what we are or are not getting done to address our environmental future. I'm, I'm very interested to hear your perspective, because you've really been focused on this. This has been a, a, an important part of your life, really, from way back when you first wrote The Rising Tide about the uh, history and politics of the dealing with the 1927 flood and how decisions were made back then. And I'm sure that has informed the way you look at currently how we're addressing this um, both global as well as regional environmental threat. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear, first of all, how you view the years building up to where we are now. And I know you're writing about this, but I'm, I'm kind of looking for a short-form version of that. And then let's talk about what's going to come up in this coming year in the future and how we are trying to um, survive as well, a region. I mean, the short-form version is... Uh, if we don't act, this place will disappear from the face of the earth. And we are running out of time. I don't want to sound like a Johnny One Note or uh, Cassandra. Uh, sometimes I feel like Cassandra. Uh, but it's as simple as that. You know, people who are born today uh, have a very good chance that in their lifetime, New Orleans will no longer exist uh, unless we act. And the longer we delay, the less likely it is that we will succeed. Uh, 
Obviously, the state has a plan. It's unfunded, almost entirely unfunded. Uh, and the state, and I, in a way, I don't want to criticize the state, but I think the problem is that the state issues press releases on all the things that it's doing, and they are doing things, but people read the press releases or the articles in the paper and they think that the problem is being addressed. But the scale on which we are acting now is simply insufficient to forestall what will otherwise be inevitable. Uh, the, the real problem is, again, funding. Uh, so there isn't any money. Uh, unless we face that fact and try to respond to it, we will not exist in this area. So that, that's a very, um, that's extremely problematic in that, for one, we're suffering from uh, having been a uh, one commodity marketplace, right, all about oil. So if the price of oil uh, goes down, then we have a phenomenal impact on the one hand, ironically, when we should be moving to new energy forms, and, and we haven't, and we should, but there's no money even to, to subsidize or support that at the state level, and not enough, obviously, at the present time, national commitment to that. What? Where, where's, the, um, where's, the, where's the path forward on, on funding? Well, I mean, I think there is uh, a couple of steps that can be taken. Uh, one is ask the people who have done a significant part of the damage, which is the oil and gas and pipeline industry, uh, to pick up their share of fixing the problem, the, just the share of the problem that they responsible for creating. I think if you do that, you're in a better position to go to the federal government and say, look, the industry is stepping up. People in Louisiana are stepping up. And now it's time for the federal government to step up. I, you know, although I've been obviously pretty associated with demanding that the oil and gas industry meet its moral responsibility and I think legal responsibility, but there's no question it's a moral responsibility. You can argue legal technicalities, whether they can evade their moral responsibility. But they did the damage. Their own studies say it. Uh, but at the same time, there are other problems created by other actions that have nothing to do with the industry. I've never said the industry is solely responsible. Uh, there are dams on the Missouri River uh, which retain 100 million tons of sediment a year that used to come down here. Uh, the, that sediment flow was cut off about 50 years ago, uh, and that sediment's no longer available to sustain the coast. I mean, th that's two th as far upriver as 2,000 miles. Uh, if those people in Montana, the Dakotas, Nebraska, and so forth uh, understood that they are having a direct impact on us, then I think they would be a lot more receptive to voting to, uh, to support 
spending some money down here. You know, that's just one example. The Gulf Intra Coastal Waterway has done a lot of damage. That's another example. You know, that certainly benefits New Orleans, but you can make a strong argument it benefits Houston and Mobile more than New Orleans because without the GIWW, New Orleans would have a competitive advantage since it would be the only port with access to the Mississippi River system. The GIWW gives Mobile and Houston GIWW Gulf Intracoastal Waterway. Uh, which runs from Texas to uh, Florida. Uh, and it's by a wide margin, probably 90% of the traffic on that is uh, uh, petroleum or related. You know, it's either oil or, or petrochemical or something along that line. You know, so that's another reason why people in another state should get involved. Uh, the port. I mean, the levees obviously are a major contributor to the problem and probably the major contributor to the problem over a long-term basis, not necessarily a short-term the basis. Port? Well, the port, the levees. But mm -hmm. the, the, uh, those levees exist, you know, not solely. The levees that do the most damage are actually downriver from New Orleans where nobody lives. And certainly when they were created, mm -hmm. nobody lived there. They, you know, they were uh, built really to protect the shipping channel, uh, and that, of course, involves sixty percent of the grain exports uh, in the country. So, if you talk to people in Minnesota and Iowa and you explain to them the ability of of you to compete on the world market is destroying coastal Louisiana, contributing to the construct destruction of the coast, then you can make a pretty good argument why, why people in that area of the country should support us in, and why it is a national issue and a national problem and so forth. Uh, so there are a lot of arguments you can be, that can be made, and I think very, very strong arguments as to why the rest of the country should contribute. But I don't think you can go to a congressman in Iowa or North Dakota and say, give us money from your constituents' tax dollars at the same time when they, that we are allowing the oil and gas industry to escape responsibility for their own for the damage that, that they caused. I just, I, I just don't think those congressmen from Rhode Island or Oregon or Iowa are, are going to listen to that if we don't even make an attempt to collect from an industry that did a significant part of the damage. So would a fair comparison to a national issue that was destructive of people that didn't get solved until it it essentially was forced on the industry through the courts, i.e. dealing with tobacco and smoking. That was a very destructive right. force, and it didn't get solved until, you know, lawyers yeah, I mean, took the, the, the companies to the, to, to the courts, right. and they were able to prove, and that's another question, how did they do the research 
that was able to prove what the smoking companies, well, what I, the cigarette I, companies didn't want you to know. Is it similar? Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. It was certainly uh, part of the reasoning. When, uh, you know, I was, I guess, the guy who came up with the idea, or certainly one of the leaders who coming up with the idea of using that kind of approach uh, to get after the, the industry because... The oil industry. Yeah, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, just as the argument behind smoking was it's true that the individual smoker uh, in, had made a choice, even though that smoker knew that there was risk. So the industry was winning all those lawsuits filed by individual smokers. But then when you got the government involved, then you're saying the government was spending millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on Medicaid uh, and other expenditures, and they were an innocent party. Uh, they did not make a choice. They were just bearing the burden. So that was a legal argument that got the uh, cigarette into the tobacco industry to pay, to con- you know, to contribute to, to that expense. So, uh, so, similarly, so are you saying that it was the government that really pushed the button in that case? Because I thought it was more well, private Well, it was lawsuits. private... I mean, on behalf of the state. That's why, in several states, numerous states, that's why Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, who at the time was secretary of HH, uh, you know, the State Department of Health, and he didn't want to sue. Uh, and uh, Mike Foster uh, didn't want to sue, but the attorney general, then independent, still independent, uh, did go forward. And as a result, uh, Louisiana got several hundred million dollars, which they would not otherwise get. Uh, but that was the argument, that they were innocent parties. They hadn't made any choice knowing the risk. Uh, Similarly, the impact of the oil industry on exposing the state to risk from hurricane storm surge, you know, it's somewhat comparable. Uh, You know, not, you know, I'm not an attorney, so, uh, but but in, in, in terms of, where the idea came from, the approach, and so forth. You know, that was always in my mind, the tobacco industry. So uh, just to refresh uh, the audience uh, on this, um, you're speaking of the suit that you and the several other parties... The Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority East, i.e. the levy board responsible for the protecting the east bank of the metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Uh, filed, which of course is now dead. However, filed a suit to ask the industry to come forward because the argument was that we, that the levy board had to bear the expense of protecting against an increased storm surge, which would not have existed that extra height on storm surge if the coast were out there in front of the levees to uh, cut, cut, you know, the more coast, the more land you have out there, then the lower the storm surge. It's, it protect, provides a buffer. And it now, was the pipelines, in, in part, of the oil companies right. that resulted in saltwater intrusion that killed off a lot of well, the, the yeah, marshes, that right? Well, that's, that's correct. And also extraction 
uh, which which caused subsidence, yeah, exactly. and and so John, the, now, the basic thing is that they there was apparently part of the deal in them getting the the uh, rights to the properties that they used for that was that they were supposed to clean it up. That's right? correct. That was part of their legal. That's correct. How did, I still don't understand how they a, have escaped you know, that legal responsibility. There, there is a uh, well, we didn't lose a trial. We never got to trial. We you know the courts ruled that we didn't have standing to bring the suit. But when we, well, the federal court, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately refused to hear our appeal on October 30th, so fairly recently. Uh, However, we had never envisioned that we would sue the industry, go to court, win a judgment, and that would be it. What we'd always tried to do or hoped to do was to inject into the conversation the fact that the industry had a responsibility, that they did the damage, because everybody in the state at the time when we filed was pretending that the industry had no role. There was literally a former state, uh, the, the head of the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association said the Nutria did it. It wasn't us. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, the Nutria are a factor, but they ain't the factor. Uh, there are anyway. Nobody was was uh, owning not, no elected official. Nobody in the legislature. Uh, no commentary from the press really uh, was in facing the truth. So our, you know, one of our goals was to change the conversation. And in fact, we won that argument. There was a poll a few months ago that said 92.6% of likely Louisiana voters believe the oil and gas industry should contribute to the solution. So that argument was won by the levy board. Secondly, we what we hoped would be, was that we would precipitate a lot of essentially copycat lawsuits uh, and change in other coastal states. Well, not other coastal states, other parishes or other entities, possibly even other levy boards. Uh, anyway, uh, that these there would be a critical mass of enough lawsuits that the industry would come to the table and negotiate an agreement for a statewide deal. We actually were naive enough to think that we might get. Bobby Jindal on our side. Obviously, that was not the case. Uh, you know, Bobby did everything he possibly could to kill the lawsuit. And Edwards hasn't exactly been a friend to this challenge either. No, I, no I, would, I would say John Bell Edwards has been extremely supportive. Number one, he was our number one defender in the state legislature uh, before he was governor, as you no doubt recall. Well, the what legislature, about the legislature tried to pass a law retroactively killing the lawsuit, uh, and in fact they did. However, that law was thrown out. Uh, I mean, we did manage to make them go through so many backward somersaults to get it out of the legislature that it was declared unconstitutional on three separate grounds. And uh, it was also so poorly written because of some of the maneuvering they had to do uh, that the court also ruled it didn't even apply to the levy board. Uh, 
So in retrospect, we actually won that fight. And, you know, soon after uh, the governor, the new John Bell, uh, took office, he invited the roughly the 30 companies that had done the most damage uh, to have a conversation with him and, and ask them to sit down and work out a deal. He didn't announce this in advance or after the fact because it wasn't a game he was playing in front of the press and the public. He actually was trying to accomplish something. Uh, but the, the oil companies immediately rejected it, so they wouldn't, the even, they, they wouldn't even talk about it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, going back to the original idea of the levy board, you know, we hoped that there would be other lawsuits filed by other entities, and indeed, despite the intense opposition of most elected officials, uh, six parishes have filed. One of the big disappointments that I've had is that Orleans Parish hasn't filed, which makes no sense to me. Uh, you know, St. Bernard filed, Jefferson filed, Plaquemine filed, so uh, St. John's filed. Uh, you know, na- all the neighboring parishes, all of which are pretty Republican parishes, uh, they filed. But so, Orleans has not filed. Uh, politically, it makes no sense, nor does it make any sense in terms of the existence of the continued existence of this city. So two questions. I, I'm not going to go into the politics of why Orleans didn't do it, uh, but we have it's a not new too admi- late. <laughs> well, listen, we have a new administration. We have a new mayor. We have a, an amazing new council. I mean, we have a lot of um, brain power. And community commitment, I would say, on the part of the new members of the council and in the mayor's office, um, do you see the issue of the lawsuits as a linchpin to going forward in dealing with the environmental issues that we're faced with in this in this in this region? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I think it's the only sign that we're facing reality. This place will cease to exist. You know, the land loss which has occurred so far has nothing to do with sea level rise. But the same causes that are con- have contributed to the land loss so far are ongoing. So you have that pressure, which has already cost the state close to 2,000 square miles. You have it's that. Be pre- that by now. You had that was an old number. Well, actually, it was 1877. Was the last number. Uh, it, it was like 1900 before Katrina. Katrina. It's a dynamic process. After Katrina, it went up to 2300. Then there was a natural regain of some land. Uh, so the last figure, which is now maybe 18 months old, is just under 1900 square miles. But it, you know, it changes every day. Uh, but anyway, I think if you, you know, when you pile sea level rise on top of the problem which already existed and was continuing, you have the end of the city. It's that simple. Uh, so unless you are going to fund what's 
necessary to protect the region, the region ain't going to be here. Okay. Now, there are two other parts to this equation, right? Um, one is the people, all of us. And so I always ask the question of what can, what can we do to help this process? And then two, um, to me, though, the overwhelming issue nationally and locally has to do with how we open the minds up of people on really, in a way, both sides as our occupant of the White House. I have a hard time saying president um, always says but certainly open the minds of some of our more conservative legislators in the state to this, these realities. And I don't think either the Democratic Party or even the myriad of environmental organizations that exist in our state and elsewhere, and we the people, are doing a very good job of opening those minds up. We're failing. And, and, and that has a lot to do with how we got the national political situation that we have right now, as well as local. And um, I mean, I certainly have a, a, a feeling of optimism right now because in a way, Trump was maybe one of the best things that could happen to us because he, he took this conservative movement to an extreme that actually forced a lot of people who were not paying any attention to deal with the dynamic, the political dynamic in the country. So he fostered the resistance and he fostered what happened in Alabama and Virginia and maybe will happen in 2018 in the, in the elections nationwide. But it's, it's so much harder because we're not communicating uh, with well, I mean, the, no. the, the conservative mindset of a lot of people who were, who were Democrats until not even a decade ago. Okay, go, go back to the line, think globally, act locally. So what can we do locally? You know, people can call, uh, email or whatever, contact Mitch. It's not too late for him to file a lawsuit. He's certainly familiar with the issue. Uh, and tell him to file. He's going to be in office until May. And if simultaneously, if he doesn't file, then you have a new mayor coming in. Uh, I think that is a strong political statement and also a legal statement. You know, I would hope that a resolution would come not through the courts, but through a voluntary agreement. It's actually in the industry's own interest to do that because that's the only way they can escape, you know, put an end to their liability. Okay. Yeah. You, you were asking what people can do. And going back to the line, think globally, act locally. The city of New Orleans, Orleans Parish, has not joined St. Bernard, Jefferson, Plaquemine, and other parishes in filing a lawsuit against the oil and gas industry. It needs to do that. So your listeners can contact the current mayor, who will be in office for several more months, and ask or demand that he file. If he doesn't, then in the meantime, they can simultaneously contact the incoming administration and members of the city council 
and say, why aren't you doing this? Why are you not protecting the city? The number one responsibility for government is public safety. Now, this is a slow-burning fuse, but it's actually more threatening than anything else. This is the only thing out there that threatens the existence of this city. The existence. Make no mistake, this place will not be here. I guess not in the in the lifetime of the, the listeners. It'll probably still be here. But it's very possible in the lifetime of the listeners' children, it will not exist. Period. Now, the reason we have some hope is that when you build land, it is a natural process, and the land actually can survive, can rise as sea level rises. It can keep pace. Sea level does not go up five feet in a day. If it goes... You know, it goes up gradually. And if you provide the land with sediment and fresh water, it will actually adjust to sea level rise within reason. Depends on how high sea level goes. It is possible that we could do everything right and get all the money to do everything we can do, and we still go underwater. That is very possible. However... I think we should at least try. And without the money, that's not going to happen. You know, I think if the city were to file, number one, it makes a political statement that gives great support to the governor in his efforts. Number two, you know, let's say that doesn't happen. At least eventually it might lead to significant amount of money flowing to the city, which could then be used to do what we can to protect ourselves. You know, I'll give you a single example. What is called the land bridge going, sticking out into the lake towards Lydell. That is eroding. If that disappears, then every storm that enters the lake will have a seven-foot higher storm surge, seven feet. So what is now a tropical storm that causes no damage and barely gets noticed will be a threat. A major storm, you put seven foot of storm surge on top of that, and we have a problem. And every community around the lake has a problem. Ultimately, we have to get additional funds at the federal level, not just from the oil industry? We need it from everybody. Okay. Everybody so, who, who shares in the responsibility for creating the problem and who shares in the benefits of preserving this region. Which includes the other states, as you mentioned before, that are putting up dams or, right. um, you know, have or, levied uh, along the river that has caused a diminution of, right. of sediment. And, and um, let me say something else about levees. People keep saying the levees, the levees, the levees, the federal government built the levees. Well, 
It's not like the federal government invaded New Orleans, held us off at gunpoint, and then put levies up against our will. The fact is there was a complete levy system by 1858. You know, the, those levies were regularly improved, and we kept asking the federal government over a period of decades to contribute to, uh, you know, to the preserving and improving those levies. And they fell short. They fell short. Finally, in 1927, when we had a major disaster on the river in multiple states, certainly including Louisiana and Mississippi, uh, then we convinced, we begged and convinced the federal government to take over the levies. You know, the, the idea that because the federal I mean, we built them. They only, the federal government only improved them. Basically, they raised the levies that were uh, already in place. The, the idea that the federal government is somehow responsible for the levy system is absurd. Uh, the, the, I mean, that the, you well, know, has we would both. not exist without those levies. You know, we built them before the feds got involved. The, you know, the, the limited extent to which the Fed, there are a lot of reasons why the federal government should spend money to help us, or I should say the nation, not the federal government, which I've already talked about. Um, but the levies, in a sense, are the least of those reasons, with the exception of the levies downriver uh, from the city, which really in existence to protect the shipping channel and, and keep that from wandering all over the place. Well, but in addition, as I understand it, and tell me I'm wrong, um, the federal government has, um, in a sense, cheated the core of the funding necessary to maintain those levies and to continue to improve them over the past, I don't know what, couple decades at least, that's, that's contributed to the failures that we experienced during Katrina. Am well, I that, right? That, right? Well, that was a different, the, those weren't river levies. They're actually, you know, different projects. And th uh, the, so we're talking about the, the levies on the canals and so on. Yeah, but, that, but that's that, another that's, factor, right? That, that is certainly a. <laughs> the factor in what Katrina. flooded most of the city in yeah. Katrina. Yeah. Uh, the levees were designed to hold that storm, but because of design failures by the Corps of Engineers, 100% responsible for that, uh, you know, the city, the bulk of the city got flooded. That doesn't include uh, the lower nine, which were flooded by a different a kind of yeah. uh, storm surge, Mr. Go uh, but the, yeah, that's that's right, Mr. Go. Uh, he's certainly a major contributor. That's that's a more complicated thing. When we're talking about the river levees, which were really national, uh, those have been uh, pretty adequately funded. They, you know, they were below grade and so forth. Uh, and there are issues about uh, storm surge coming right up the river. Uh, and which would require higher levies and, and, and so forth, and, and that is a problem. But but I, my understanding also, just to, I know this is a little bit of a diversion from what we were saying, so to speak, but um, is that 
some of those design failures resulted from budgetary issues at the federal level, that the, that the feds were not budgeting the Corps to do the work that the Corps wanted to do, and so you got changes in the design to, to go from things like the T... Uh, T wall and how deep your T and and uh, you know going I. from fifty nine feet anchoring them fifty nine feet deep to anchoring them seventeen feet deep. Uh, there was budgetary pressure. I, I think you know, the, but that's part of the same syndrome, isn't it? Of yeah. of the nation, let's say, in Congress, yeah. viewing this as a, a local issue when, in fact, again, it is it. This whole region. Well, that, the drainage canals nationally. You know, those flood walls were, of course, a local issue. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to get overly technical, uh, but that was a kind of local issue in the same way. If you're flooding a city in Colorado uh, on a river, I mean, I remember a Colorado congressman that didn't want to flood, didn't want to vote for aid to us after Katrina, but a year or two later, all of a sudden, there's flooding in Colorado. They think just because they're high up there, they're not going to get floods. They were sadly mistaken. Of course, they wanted all the help they could possibly get from the federal government, uh, hypocrisy being nothing new in politics. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, the, the, you know, I want to separate the national issues from the local issues. And in terms of the drainage canals, the outfall canals, pumping stations, et cetera, et cetera, those are largely local. Uh, the, in the, the bigger issue is storm surge. The bigger issue is hurricanes uh, or a river flood as well, as 2011 showed us, a, a big river flood. That's also a national issue. Uh, that's where we really need the help and where it's really a national responsibility. So, so let's go to the national issue because if, if, if I would say this past year, one of the most important developments was all the re- replete examples of the effects of climate change throughout the country. Right. Whether you're talking about these massive fires in California or you're talking about Harvey and so forth. Floating events in Houston and Florida and, um, you know, just environmental challenges that are, I think, without a doubt at this point, except for in the minds of, again, somebody who occupies the White House and his buddies, for the most part are recognized as a result of climate change. So going to the global as opposed to the local, and I don't see how we solve the local without dealing with the global at this point, um, where do you see the breakthrough coming in recognition on the part of the leadership in this country that we are dealing with here a, a talk about the existential flood um, threat that we're dealing with locally, we're dealing with an existential threat nationally and globally. Right. Well, I mean, we're the point of the spear. Uh, we have right here some of the fastest if not the fastest, relative sea level rise. That's a combination of subsidence, the ground sinking, largely, certainly partly because of the extract, just like sucking a straw, when you extract everything from underneath the surface, it sinks. Uh, That's part of it. There is probably some natural faulting as well. When When you combine that with sea level rise, we have just about the highest rate of relative sea level rise in the world. 
but everybody is going to face it. You know, they have normal high tides and you've got flooding in Miami uh, right now. And in a lot of ways, we're in a better position uh, than a place like Miami because at least we have a fighting chance. Because as I said earlier, the coast can rise with sea level if it's if it's not the if it's the worst case scenarios, we're going to go underwater no matter what we do, no matter how much money we have, period. But we don't know that it's going to be the worst case scenario, fifty, seventy, hundred years from now. However, if you built on, I mean, and that's because our our land actually, as I said, can can rise. That buffer outside the levee system will go up with sea level. Those plants fight for survival like anything alive. Uh, sediment comes in and, you know, New Orleans itself is not going to rise, but the land around us could, so the buffer protecting us would could rise. But if you built on a rock and sea level goes up, you're going underwater. There ain't nothing you can do about it. And, you know, a place like New York is built on a rock. Uh, their problems are, you know, as sea level rise continues and becomes much more noticeable, uh, New Orleans is going to be the least of the world's problems. How interesting is that? I never, I never thought of it that way at all. Hmm. John, in this coming year, where do you see the movement either... Favorably, is it through the courts? Is it by the action that we can take here? Um, is it? Uh, well, I think in the short term, there's no question uh, it's going to be legal. Uh, you know, it would be great if somebody convinces the mayor to file a lawsuit. You know, maybe if he hears from a lot of constituents, he will. He certainly knows Why where didn't I he, by the way. Do you have any idea? Well, I asked him, and, and yeah. yeah, he said that he was concerned that if he filed the next day, he'd get a call from Shell and that they'd move out they'd, of the all this, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. and that he had to weigh the existential threat to the city. He's made speeches in which, you know, which I could have made. Uh, in terms of the responsibility of the industry and so forth and so on. Uh, but he won't pull the trigger and file a lawsuit. And, uh, you know, I think that's a uh, false balance. Number one, you know, the industry has been saying things like that for decades. The head of the Louisiana oil and gas industry when uh, under oath was asked to name a single company that left Louisiana or, for that matter, decided not to operate in Louisiana uh, because of the legal climate here, uh, he could not name a single company, not one company. So to some extent, it's a false uh, parallel. On the other hand, let's say he's right. And in fact, you know, Shell... Uh, I think was a good corporate citizen after the storm. I remember that they had planned 
to take jobs out of New Orleans and decided after the storm to keep them here. So, you know, I'm not against Shell and I'm not against the industry. I just want them to, you know, accept the responsibility for what they did and pay to fix the part of the problem that they created. But, you know, back to this point, let's say Shell did do that and it did cost us jobs. The existence of the city is at stake. Is that worth the temporary employment of a few hundred people? I don't think so. And (laughs) particularly when the longer we delay in acting, not only the more difficult, but we approach the point at which it's impossible for us to catch up. So this opens for me, a can of worms that's, a, a, that's related but a little bit different from what we've been talking about. And as we come closer to the end of the program, and I, I hope people are staying with us. This is, um, an, an, I, I don't think I've ever done a single interview for my show before, but um, I think this is a good time for us to be very focused on this. We're faced with, a, with similar issues with the petrochemical industry throughout the state, and we're still chasing industries with very high tax concessions that are definitely not advantageous to our state for a few hundred jobs or maybe even less, less than 100 jobs associated with a plant, a petrochemical plant that comes to the state to take advantage of our sort of, you know, friendliness towards that industry. Is that a sound policy at all? You know, of well, course- I mean, that's it's strictly a cost-benefit analysis. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of press attention to that. And, uh, you know, it suggests that you're right. And I'd probably tend to agree with you. But, you know, I'm certainly not against industry coming here. I'm for industry coming here. I'm certainly not against jobs. I'm for jobs. I think the idea that environmentalists are against jobs is absurd. Uh, In terms of the coastal issue, uh, after I was uh, removed from the levy board when we filed the lawsuit, you know, we actually were constitutionally protected and, you know, that we were one of the few boards in the state where we didn't serve at the governor's pleasure. He couldn't remove us without cause, which that insulation was the only reason we could file the lawsuit, but my term expired. Surprise, I wasn't reappointed. <laughs> uh, but I then formed uh, a nonprofit to uh, support the fight in the legislature against the legislature passing laws to kill the lawsuit. Anyway, one of the things that nonprofit did was hire Tim Ryan, the former head of the University of New Orleans, and a former business school dean and economist to do a study of job creation if we actually funded the master plan. And it came up with extraordinary numbers of, you know, at the $50 billion level, it was going to create 112,000 jobs. And I, I told him I didn't want the study done the way the oil industry does it, where they come up with the result first and then justify it, I said I wanted an academically rigorous study that would that would unbiased, uh, you know, 
that, that could stand up to scrutiny. And that was the number he came up with. Uh, the fact is the Dutch make $9 billion a year exporting their expertise on how to handle water. That is an expanding, in fact, exploding market. And that is a market that, you know, we should be competing with. And as we fund the master plan, you know, we have developed the expertise and the technical skills that, will allow us to compete in the world market with the Dutch. Uh, so that's going to create jobs. This is not a job-killing proposition. It is a job-creating proposition. So, so you heard about the town in Florida, which announced yesterday, at least I heard of it on the news yesterday, uh, uh, yeah, that's going it. totally solar. Right. And that, that's another area, of course, of um, expanding right. economic opportunity. John, suffer me for a moment the, um, the I told you so story of having in um, the election when Treen got elected, I think that was 1979, yeah. uh, of the three memos that I wrote to Sonny Mouton, who was running for governor, I was working for him, saying we need to be developing our marine research our hazardous waste handling, our health industries, all related to the environment of what was going on at the time. And um, he never even took up that issue, which would have been, you know. Well, you've got to give Treen credit for, for trying to get the oil industry to uh, uh, pay for the coast. Uh, and, I forgot know. that he did that. Yeah, it's pretty important. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a conservative columnist named Quinn Hillier, uh, who attacked the lawsuit pretty vigorously uh, at the time he, the advocate was running columns by him. And, and yet he agreed with me on the coast, and he even agreed with me that the industry was responsible, and he was, all, he was involved with uh, Trane's effort to tax the industry. We ended up writing a joint column uh, about the fact that the industry was responsible and should belly up to the bar and accept the, the responsibility. I mean, it is the industry's responsibility. They did it. I, I just, <laughs> and, and I think it's pretty clear that we, we've made the case throughout this discussion that that's not going to happen unless they're pretty much forced to do it through the courts. And so that's, that's, um, that's where the, the pressure is going to be. So who are the legal minds going forward this year that um, are going to be focused on this, that are going to make the difference in, in actually eventually bringing successful legal action to force the industry to clean up their mess and protect well, our future. I think there are a set of attorneys in the state that are, that are pretty good at that. Uh, number one, I actually did conduct a national search prior to uh, the levy boards hiring a group of attorneys. And... I mean, I talked to lawyers in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. I ended up hiring uh, an attorney in a firm what's in New Orleans, what's his name Gladstone name? Jones. Right. And he put together. Is he still on the case? Uh, well, obviously, the levy board case is dead. I know, However, but I, mean, I don't mean that case. I mean, in he general. He is still very involved. He's mm -hmm. got some private landowner lawsuits that could be very important. And, you know, he put together a team, which includes. Uh, uh, Fishman Haygood locally and the Lake Charles firm, Veron Bice, 
so those three firms have been working it. Uh, at the same time, uh, the Carmouche Law Firm in Baton Rouge represents the parishes that have filed so far. Uh, they are working it. They are certainly capable. Uh, and, you know, the, the legal talent is here. I think the political will has got to manifest itself, uh, both locally and, you know, the governor has been very supportive of this, uh, but perhaps has been a little less aggressive than, than I would have hoped. Part of that, maybe all of it, comes from the fact that the attorney general is violently opposed uh, to taking this action. And we have an odd situation where the attorney general has got to approve outside lawyers, and this should be a ministerial function. It's always been regarded as a ministerial function, uh, but Landry seems is you know taking the position it's discretionary. I think if they actually went to court, which they have not yet done to fight this out between the governor and the attorney general, since the governor is the superior official and we're talking about policy, you know, I, I think the governor would win that. But anyway, that's, that continues to be an argument that they're having. So we've, we've taken a little di- bit of a deep dive into this and um, – I hope that uh, many of you stayed with us on this and get the message that your voice is important. As we, again, learned in Alabama, um, the votes really counted in Virginia. It really counted. I don't know what the outcome of that is at the moment. They're still at the flipping the coin right. phase, I think, in an election where you know 20 more people voted for one or the other that would have one more more, really yeah one one vote was involved there so I I urge you all as we greet 2018 and think about what we're going to do and and the resolutions we're going to make so you make a resolution about losing weight and cleaning your house up and all that stuff but make a resolution to figure out how you can express your voice and weigh in on an issue that will determine, as John's been saying, whether there is a Louisiana um, for your kids and a New Orleans for your kids. Um, So this is Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations and um, a happy new year and a a year of progress for all of us, I hope. Um, Talk with you soon. We'll continue our series looking at things that need to happen in the coming year over the next few shows. Thank you.